0: The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. Jimmy lays the pressure on when he says a special treat. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> You know, the last time I came to preach, uh, I preached on uh, the final words. They're David's last words. So uh, I am back. So it wasn't Sam's last words, so that's a good thing. But I wanted to say to you good morning. I hope you are all fat and happy because this has been a long Thanksgiving week, and I think uh, I've had my fill. Uh, I do have a question to start out with. Uh, Did anyone have pumpkin pie for breakfast after Thanksgiving? Isn't it good? This is great when you get it out and put that whipped cream on. And I think it's a balanced breakfast meal. I really do. I think it's great. But my name is Sam Bennett. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, specifically, my title is uh, Pastor of Community Life and Operations. So I want to take just a couple of minutes here just to tell you a little bit about what that means. Because as you see the construction going on around you, as you have been seeing it, uh, that falls under my uh, purview, I guess you would say, as the pastor of operations. Now... I would just want you to know that I know there's been a lot of questions about when is this going to get done? You know, what's the progress? How are things going? There's a lot of stuff that's happening that you can't see because it's in the interior walls and in the ceilings. Uh, Eventually, we hope to get sheetrock up. I do ask you uh, for your prayers as we are moving forward because this was not a bidded contract at a set price. So as you know, if you're trying to build a house... Prices are rising, so prices for our building supplies and things are rising, and we're at some critical points where we're having to make some decisions about what we finish and what we possibly don't. So be in prayer for us as we uh, really look at that as a staff to decide what we need. We may eventually have a phase three. I'm sure by their family meeting time, there will be a, a better update of that. Uh, but just want you to know, we are moving forward. Progress is happening. Walls will be coming up before too long. So when that happens, you'll see that, uh, the work's being done because you can't see it anymore. (laughs) When these walls go up here, you won't be able to see what's going on back in there. So hopefully that would relieve your mind. But also the other, uh, part of my job is as community life, community relation, community, not relations, but community, uh, groups. Uh, As good as it is here on Sunday morning, you know, we all love to come together and fellowship and worship and hear God's word and spend a minute and a half of greeting and then at the end of the service we hang out and spend time together. As good as this is, it's still not community life. It's not doing life together. So this is my promo to say if you're not in a community group, uh, somewhere in some way... You probably don't have that connection that you need to be part of a tight-knit church family where you come together and you pray together, you read God's Word together, you sharpen, as iron sharpens iron, you study God's Word, and you just care for one another in a way that you really, it's hard to do that here. Here we get fed, it's great, but there in the community groups is, is a place where life continues after sunday so if you haven't been a part of community group i would encourage you to go to uh, our website you can go to the info hub and click on i think it's groups and there sign up and we'll do our best to get you plugged in but i would encourage you to do that Uh, as i said my name's sam bennett i'm one of the pastors here usually uh, brian preaches on sunday mornings but several times a year he takes it off uh, either for just to seek vision for direction for our church or to look at a future series or like this morning just to come and be part of the congregation and to celebrate with us and to worship with us so Brian I'm, I'm grateful for you and uh, if you're a visiting if you're a guest with us today I encourage you to come back and hear Brian preach so I'm grateful that We have about four or five pastors here in our church and elders that can fill this pulpit too And we can allow him to have that time So i'm grateful for that and we just finished a series called uh shifting sands And that series we were talking about our culture today and how we are to live out Our christian life in the shifting sands of culture I think we all really enjoyed that and appreciated that series if you didn't get a chance to see it It's online. You can go back and look at it on uh our Facebook page or YouTube and today is a standalone sermon which is sort of like me standing alone up here you know it doesn't connect with anything <laughs> as far as <laughs> as far as it's but Christ how's that uh, it, it doesn't connect with anything in this series that we've been teaching but it it's gonna connect uh, the Old Testament to the new I'll tell you that so it's something I'm looking forward to and uh, I think next we're going into Advent so next Sunday, we'll start Advent. Can you believe it's already Christmas time? 29 days until Christmas. That's amazing. Now, today is also a family Sunday, so I see a lot of kiddos here. I do want to give uh, a little bit of a warning to you parents, because what I'm going to be teaching today is going to be on terms that they may not hear in church so often. Uh, you probably heard them, but not in detail like I'm going to explain them today. So they, they may have questions. And is that me popping? They may have questions, so parents, I would encourage you to make sure that you take good notes because the questions they have are the foundations for the New Testament. So what we're going to be talking today is is things that is going to lead us into the New Testament. Uh, Over the past several years, there have been numerous pastors, well-known pastors, that have been on TV and they've come across and they've said that the Old Testament... Basically should be done away with. They have suggested that the Old Testament is full of fairy tales and fables. And they have suggested that it is not healthy for the church today. It's, it's hard to bring new believers in to an old way of teaching such as the Old Testament. But I think if we want to not repeat our past mistakes, we must know the past. And not only know it... But understand it and be able to explain it, not just dismiss it because it may be hard to teach and it may be difficult to explain. It is my belief that if we don't have a firm grasp on where our fundamental beliefs came from and know how to move forward based on our past, then we will change with the wind or the shifting sand as is in our last series and never have a firm foundation for what we truly believe. We must know the truth. John 17, 17 says, Set them apart in your truth. Thy word is truth. Then in Acts 20, verse 27, in Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian church, he told them, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel is not just one part. It's both parts. It's all of it. I know Paul was not reading out of the Old and the New Testament, but he's talking about everything that we see today. This morning we're going to be uh, looking into a few terms or topics or things that are often quoted without much historical understanding and commonly misunderstood throughout Christianity today. What we're going to look at is things like the sanctuary. We're going to look at the altar. The altar. We're going to look at the, the kinsman redeemer. And then we're going to look at the, the high priest. What do these words mean? You've heard them said all your lives. Where did they come from? And what did they mean to us today? And it is my prayer that as we go through our time together, that God would give me words that could explain the depths of each of these terms and what they mean and what they mean to you today. And we would leave here with a much better understanding of what our Redeemer really represents and who He is. The title of the message today is Horns of the Altar. Now, for outdoorsmen, I'm a hunter. That can mean many things. Have you ever been into Bass Pro Shop or Cabela's? There is an altar of horns there. There are <laughs> mounted animals everywhere. And, uh, you know, as recently as last week, I could be accused of having such an altar, especially after I went hunting in Illinois, and it was a successful hunt. Uh, my wife, I, I called her, and I said, I'm bringing something home with me, and she doesn't like my altar of horns. So uh, it was, it was a, quite a, a discussion, but... Uh, for our message today, the horns of the altar will be defined as the four corners of the altar. On each corner of the altar, there were horns. And that's what, that's what our message is talking about. In the Old Testament, the altar was very different than it is today. It wasn't a, a pretty step that you see in front of the sanctuary building or in front of what we call the sanctuary where you would kneel and pray. It was basically a fire pit. Is a place where priests would make sacrifices to cover the sins of the people. The altar represented a holy encounter with God. But it was also known as a place of refuge or a sanctuary. And it was a place of protection for people that had done something terribly wrong. Even Hollywood portrays this sentiment. How many of you have seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame 3? If you've got kids or grandkids, I know you have. But this is this, there was a scene where Frollo decides that he's going to punish Esmeralda because she's not attracted to him. So he puts her on this stand and he's going to burn her at the stake, I think it is. And Quasimodo comes swinging out of the church temple on this rope and he grabs Esmeralda and swings back into the sanctuary where Frollo could no, could no longer touch her. And I can still hear him swinging, sanctuary, sanctuary. and, And they couldn't touch her because he had her in the church. Now, the concept of going to church for sanctuary is not just something you see in the movies. It is actually from the Bible, and it's in the Old Testament. In fact, God was the one who originally established sanctuary cities. Now, these cities were not like the sanctuary cities or the states that we see today that are known to harbor convicted criminals. These cities were established to protect a person that had accidentally killed someone. They were not for murderers or for petty thieves. They were solely for the purpose of someone that had killed someone accidentally. Uh, Numbers 35 is our passage today. Verses 13 through 28, we're going to read about six cities where Moses was asked to set aside for refuge. The Lord said to Moses, he said, I I want you to give 48 cities or towns to the Levites to reside in. And six of these towns will be designated as a refuge, a sanctuary city. As I said, the text is Numbers 35, verses 13 through 28. We're going to read this whole passage. Beginning at 13, if you have a Bible in front of your pew, it's page 134. Verse 13, "...and the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be the refuge for the people of Israel." and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills another person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death, and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death, and he died, He is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood, underline that, shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he punished him out of hatred and hurled something at him lying in wait so that he died or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood, there it is again, shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him. I always get a chuckle at that. I could just see somebody waiting and drop a stone on somebody accidentally. Uh, Maybe not. But anyhow, it's used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died though he was not his enemy and did not seek him harm, then the congregation the congregation, should judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to the city of refuge to which he had fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest. Underline that. Death of the high priest. Who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of the city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his, of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the day of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we have just read through this passage of scripture, that you would make it clear to us about what this means and who it represents. Lord, thank you that that we have the freedoms here in our world, in our country, to come here and learn about you, to pray to you, And to love one another because we are all one big family. Lord, I pray that your word would change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the first point or the first subject I want to talk about is the place of sanctuary. Someone in the earlier session when we were talking, they said, is this a sanctuary? And I said, it's definitely referred to, it has been referred to a sanctuary. A sanctuary we might call in today's culture is a room where we would come and we would worship or where we would spend time together. But the whole concept of sanctuary and where the whole beginning of that word came from is that there is a place of refuge in case of accidental death. I don't want to get away from that. Today we have games that mimic sanctuaries. Okay, We have uh, things like musical chairs. We have uh, cakewalks, and maybe even baseball represents that uh, because there's a safe place that you can't be touched if you're in that zone. Now, musical chairs probably doesn't serve that purpose very well because I've seen people almost killed at those games because <laughs> they're jerking chairs out from one another, even older people, you know, and just for a cake. But the concept is the same. Keep in mind, this, this idea of sanctuary was the norm for that time. And it usually involved fleeing to a priest or standing inside a temple. The earliest record of what the Hebrews accepted as a place of sanctuary is in the book of Exodus. It's in Exodus 21. You can write this down, verses 12 through 14. It's not on the screen, so you'll just have to listen to me. Anyone, Here's what it says. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. See, the original place of sanctuary was actually the altar. And more specifically, the altar of burnt offering. So before the Lord gave the full law... To Moses, it was the practice of the Israelite man to run to the altar and to actually grab hold of the horns of the altar as a sign that he was seeking refuge or sanctuary. As long as he stayed glued to the altar, no one could touch him. So why is it that criminals would use the altar as a sanctuary? And at times in Israel's history for Hebrews to do the same. Well, it turns out that there is a biblical principle that falls within the Levitical law that holiness as well as uncleanliness can be transferred from one person to another or from object to object or from object to person or from person to object. The law basically said that whatever touches a holy object becomes holy itself. You know, the thought came to my mind about the woman in Mark 5 with the blood issue. I've got to think this is what was on her mind. As she was running just to touch, she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, speaking to Jesus, I know I'll be made whole. I have to think that was her, her thought process at the time. However, God's law does not permit hands to touch the altar, human hands to touch the altar, or any sacred implement. Only one exception. And that is that the priests, for certain purposes, such as transporting the objects back and forth, can at times touch these objects. And even then, because a human has touched them, they have been defiled. This is one of the reasons for uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. See, on that day, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of atonement on the physical things of the tabernacle and therefore cleanse them. So the use of sanctuary cities... For the Israelites could not have happened Until they were in the promised land But like so many of God's ordinances and his laws The Israelites lost the meaning And what happened back and forth Between asylum changed Sanctuary cities changed And the culture changed As we just talked about this week But I just want to make make clear Where sanctuary came from Point two I want to talk about the purpose of the kinsman redeemer. Beginning in uh, verse 16, in Numbers 35, verse 16, it says, We receive the laws concerning the persons being killed on whether uh, slaying of a human was murder or whether it was manslaughter or whether it was something entirely different. Uh, Look at verse 19. The Lord says that the person who is to be the executioner for the murder is to be the blood avenger. Okay, the blood avenger, the term, the Hebrew term for blood avenger is goel. It's better, it is dom goel, dom goel. Dom meaning blood and goel meaning avenger. Actually, it's better defined as redeemer, the blood redeemer. So it is the blood redeemer or the blood avenger who is assigned To kill the murderer. Also in Hebrews, the term goel is understood. It is understood that the avenger is to be an immediate family member. Okay, and it is the dom goel who is to take action on the offender when there is an accidental murder. Now I want you to understand. I know this is this is hard to understand and hard to see, but this is this is not tradition. This is in the Bible. This is God's word. But because we have a sinful nature and imperfect justice systems doesn't mean that the godly concept of the blood avenger has been done away with. In fact, one of the primary reasons of the kinsman redeemer is to be the blood avenger. Has everyone heard of the kinsman redeemer? The kinsman redeemer. There's songs about it. We hear about it all the time. We're going to dive into that because many Christians today like to dismiss unattractive characteristics of God, like uh, like his sovereignty and his wrath in favor of his mercy and his love. We also tend to describe the kinsman redeemer as a very sympathetic and caring person whose job is to run around rescuing his innocent family from the bank. Even... The bank would foreclose on their land and the kinsman redeemer would rescue them. No doubt one function of the kinsman redeemer is to buy back the land that was purchased or that was given to his clan. See, one big thing is land is big for the Hebrews. Hebrews. And they are not to give up their land. And the kinsman redeemer would go back in and he would buy up the land that was lost. Or he would go in and he would buy back a a person in their clan that was sold into slavery. That was one of the primary purposes of the kinsman redeemer. is to protect that family, the tight-knit family. But another equally and important role is as the blood avenger. The kinsman redeemer wears both hats. The kinsman, he is the avenger and he is the redeemer. In this passage of Scripture, there are two things that are perfectly clear. Number one, God is a God of justice that hates murder. Number two, He supports capital punishment. Yet, what kind of justice system would it be if someone's life were taken accidentally and then they were hunted down and killed for it? So, Numbers 35, verse 22, gives some examples of accidental killings, such as someone getting angry and shoving someone with no intent to kill them at all. Or maybe a person threw something at someone but not intending to severely injure the person, definitely not intended to kill them. Then, if the congregation decides that there are no malicious intent, the offender is to be protected from the blood avenger. This type of killing today might be called manslaughter or a homicide. And if it is an unintended killing, it is the judgment of the congregation that the offender is to be escorted to one of the six Levitical sanctuary cities where the blood avenger may not go after him at all. However, this does not relieve the offender of the responsibility for the death of the victim and even more, It does not relieve the duty of the dom goel to kill the person. It's just that there is a safe place, a sanctuary. So in verse 26, it states that if the offender of manslaughter stays safely inside the sanctuary city limits, he is protected. But if he ventures outside of the city limits of the asylum city, then he becomes fair game. And if the blood avenger kills him outside of the city limits, Of the sanctuary city then it is considered justice Sort of reminds me of a Wildlife sanctuary Anybody ever been to Cataloochee or the Yellowstone You know For someone that loves to hunt This is a paradise You know you got there and you see these huge animals That are just roaming throughout the parks and everything And a hunter cannot Go into there and hunt them They're safe it's a sanctuary So you know what Someone might do. They, they might look for landowners that border the parks. And they may start talking to someone because they know, a hunter knows that there's certain times a year that the animals are going to roam. Maybe they're looking for a girlfriend or something, and they are prone to go over a sanctuary line and cross over. And if they do, they're fair game. But as long as they stay in that sanctuary city, they're protected. Well, the same is true of the sanctuary cities that we're reading about here in the Bible today. So um, as long as they don't cross the line. They're protected. Point three. Are you with me? I know it's, that's, that was long and hard. Hang in there. Point three is going to bring it all together. So if you, it's cold in here for a reason today. <laughs> Point three we're going to talk about the high priest. And this is going to pull everything together. So if you've been asleep. Wake up. It's time. Verse 28 adds a very important warning to this whole procedure. The offender of manslaughter remains in his blood guilt no matter how accidental it may have been and is exiled to the sanctuary city until the death of the high priest. Until the the death of the current high priest. Whether it be a day, a week, or 45 years, only then the blood guilt is removed and forgiven and the dom goel is no longer allowed to take the person's life under any circumstances. And the offender may return home not only free of the dom goel, but also cleared in God's eyes of his blood guilt. The only way a manslayer can have his guilt before the Lord atoned for is that the high priest to pay for it with his own life. Can you see the richness in this text with us today? The death of the high priest becomes the God-accepted atonement for the committer of manslaughter. Now I want you to, I want to fast forward here to the New Testament. So we are going to get into the New Testament. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 7 says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son before born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. There's the word redeemer. That we might receive adoption as sonship. Remember the Dom Goel has to be an, an immediate member of the family. That we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his sons into your hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba Father. Listen to this. So that you are no longer a slave. Remember the kinsman redeemer buys back the slave. But God's child And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We desperately need to see the parallel of this passage this morning. In the Old Testament, the kinsman redeemer would buy back his family out of slavery. In the book of Galatians, Jesus came to free us from the slavery of sin as our kinsman redeemer. And when he comes again, it will still be as the kinsman redeemer... But next time, he will come as the Dom Goel, the blood avenger, to take out God's wrath on those who persecute his people and refuse to submit to God. This is the kinsman redeemer that we read about in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see, take a look at uh, the high priest that is also identified in Jesus. We read earlier in the Old Testament that the only time that a manslayer could have his guilt removed was by the death of the high priest. I want you to listen to this incredible passage of Scripture in Hebrews. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17. It's on the screen. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not Angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Listen, when Jesus died on that cross, the sins of the world were completely atoned for. Because he is the only high priest sent by God to take away the sins of the world. All those other priests could take away, couldn't take away sin. They could only cover it with an offering, with a blood sacrifice. Listen to 17. It says that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And then he might make atonement for the sins of the people. But there's a caveat. This is only true if you have found a place of sanctuary. Sanctuary. Specifically, a person of sanctuary, a person of Jesus Christ. Because he is the only high priest that can totally take away sins. As I think Brian said this last week, your past, present, and future. If you know Jesus Christ, your past, present, and future sins have been covered. They've been forgiven. They've been forgotten. They will not be held against you. Do we continue to sin? Yeah. We struggle. We're in our earthly bodies. But evidence that God is in us is that he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside us. And when you are a child of God, you cannot just go on living like you always lived. Because God is at work in you. And he's working in and through you. And you can't just do the things you used to do and be okay with it. That's one indicator if you've... People have asked me before. I grew up in a church that that felt if you sinned, regardless if you were saved or not, you were going to hell. And that's a hard burden to carry. And one of the ways I've I've discovered that is very clear to me is to know if I... Some people say because of that, how do you know you're saved if you keep sinning? Well, are are you okay with your sin? Or is God working in you to correct you, to, to... to make you more like Him because that's what He's trying to do. He sent His Spirit here to guide us, to teach us, to correct us, and to help us. He's our helper. And that same Spirit that was in Jesus lives in us. And that's how we can know that we're His is there is a relationship there. You know, you know how you can be close to someone in your family and not even be together? That's the same Spirit that you have in Christ. I've totally lost my place, so I don't know where I'm at. Um, but there is a caveat and that is If you want Christ as your kinsman redeemer You have to ex- accept his, his sacrifice for you on the cross You have to accept that his work was sufficient to cover your sins And by his death as high priest he did that I have a couple of questions I want to put up here today Is uh. These questions are important. As I said in the beginning, community groups, we'll go back and we'll discuss these questions in our community groups. And if you're not in a community group, discuss them with your family. That's fine. But I know this was a a long, hard, deep lesson today. But I I really want you to consider two questions. Number one, are you a slave to sin? Because a lot of our passage talked about being a slave to sin. When I say that, what I'm talking about being a slave to sin is what controls your thoughts. You now, Where do I spend most of my time imagining what I'm going to do or who I'm going to be? Do I spend it in the presence of God? Do I spend it trying to become more like Christ? Or do I spend it trying to promote myself? Do I spend it for things of this world? Because the Bible says that the things of this world will pass away. Am I a slave to sin? I think we all need to consider Amen. that. Number two is, do you have a or do you know the kinsman redeemer? Because as we talked about before, Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. He is the only kinsman redeemer. And he wears two hats. He wears one as the avenger and one as the rescuer. And if he hasn't rescued you from your sin, I encourage you to do that today. In just a few minutes, we are going to be taking communion. And, you know, I want want to make sure you understand that communion is, is something that we celebrate as family because this is what Christ has done for us. We're family because we... It's just like when he was sitting with his disciples on that last day. He said, we're all together here. It's more than his disciples. But he said, I want to break bread with you. And that's what communion represents, is that we are part of this family. That we are part of the family of God. And I know at the, every time we have communion, we want to make sure that you, that you understand that this is for the family of believers. But also want to make sure that you understand that you can become part of the family this morning the Bible says that all you have to do is to call upon him believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved it doesn't say you might be saved it says you shall be saved so as we get, prepare our hearts for communion if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior as your kinsman redeemer I, I would encourage you to do that just right in your seat just invite God into your heart ask him to, to become your kinsman redeemer And then get up and come down here and celebrate communion with us as part of the family. But the way we do it is, um, I'm going to sit down and we'll give about two or three minutes of just meditation. And um, when I get up and come partake of communion, I'll invite all of y'all to come down. We'll start at the back, work your way down and out the sides at the ends. And then we'll close with worship and, uh, and a benediction, okay? So let's just have a few moments of silence.